Thanks for pressing play. Who are you? What do you want to be? What's the difference between being and doing? How do we deal with our past, even our dark side? And why being yourself in business is a superpower. Our guest today is the legendary Minter Dial. He's a B2C branding master, having had a legendary career as a marketing executive with L'Oreal, and while he was there being the CEO of hair care brand Redkin. Minter is a guy with a big heart and a very different mind. He's also an extraordinary storyteller. His first two books are both international prize winners. And Maurice Levy, chairman of Publicist Group, says his new book, which is called You Lead, is, quote, a must read. And if you believe in the power of dialogue to change thinking, you're going to love everything about this conversation with Minter Dial. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine calls us, quote, the best business podcasts. And some reviewers call us, quote, asinine and overrated. Whatever you call us, we are the business dialogue podcast for people who believe in free speech and crave unfiltered, unfettered, unedited, real dialogues with the people making our world a different place. And now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. It's great to see you, Minter. Likewise. And I got to tell you, uh, so obviously I've been through your book. It's a wonderful book. Thank you for writing it. Thank you. I, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this before before we got on. And I think anybody who believes they have something to say that might make a difference for others, if, if they are compelled, should write a fucking book. And it's interesting, you know, I hear a lot of authors, you know, concerned about competition. <laughs> When I, I, I choose to live in a world of abundance, I'm maybe somewhat naive about that, but I think the more people sharing more powerful ideas and learnings in the marketplace of ideas, the bigger difference it'll make. And, and if you write a book like this, I don't know how you feel, but I know how I feel about the stuff that we write, which is if it makes a difference to one person, it was all worth it. Mm-hmm. And so this book you've written is very thoughtful. And, and to me, the whole book, you did a wonderful job with, especially the subtitle, in my mm-hmm. opinion, mm-hmm. how being yourself makes you a better leader. And, and what struck me about the subtitle, and as I went through the book, and obviously we'll get into it, one of the biggest causes of pain in life mm-hmm. and, and failure in your career is when we try to be something we're not to accommodate others. And so I'm leading to a question, which is, why is How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader? Why did you want that to be the subtitle of this book, Minter? Well, at a, say, anecdotal level, people with chips on their shoulder are terrible leaders. And if you don't know you have a chip, then you're never going to correct. And, and so, uh, I mean, essentially, there are probably very few good leaders. And the reason for that isn't that they don't have people skills, is that they haven't done the work to figure out who they truly are. And uh, my feeling, my observation is that a lot of people think they know who they are. They, they might have a broad idea of who they want to be, but they haven't done the hard work that says, 
more precisely who I want to be, and more importantly, my imperfections, my the bad side, the dark side, and dealing with my shadows. And until you do both, have a more precise vision of the person you want to be and deal with the shadows, then the chances are you're going to keep the chips on your shoulder. You're going to react unnecessarily rationally. You're going to say things that hurt people because you're not able to have the empathy to be present with others. So that's, that's the basic gist of why that's the subtitle. Thank you for that. And I really appreciate it. And that thing about uh, going to the depths and look, maybe not to get overly personal too quickly, but fuck it. One of the things my friends share with me a lot, Minter, is, uh, and these are the exact words, you know, my friend Nisha says this to me, exact words she uses. She says, Christopher, one of your superpowers is your ability to go deep in anger, hmm. to allow an experience of anger that looks to some people like bad things are about to happen and get right to that line where you own your anger. You can express it and experience it. One of my favorite expressions is anger is my happy place. It's the most pure emotion other than love for me. Uh, and it's a motivating emotion for me. Anyway, she says one of your superpowers is you can go right to that red line of extraordinary anger and not go over it. Hmm. And so this leads me to a point, which is something I learned as an early young man was, um, I can't remember the exact phrasing. You know, I did a lot of personal development work when I was young. I had a lot of Samsonites to unpack, <laughs> so to speak. Um, Skeletons in the closet. Is, uh, well, and, 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 and monsters and yeah, all of that. And shit, you're dragging around all mm. of that stuff, right? Oh. You got to un deal with all of it. Anyway, one, in, in all that work that I did in my late teens and early to mid twenties, one of the things I learned is the degree to which we can embrace our inner mother Teresa, so to speak, is the degree to which we can embrace our inner Hitler. Mm. And so I'm curious as to your reaction to that. Mm. Well, I, I, um, I, let's say on a positive note, I think that we all are generally wired to be good. And the reason why I think that is that on balance, you, you live stronger together than as an island alone. And, and the only way that works is if you are good together. Because if, you, if you're an evil person as a CEO, you might do well in the short term. But as soon as you leave, the vacuum that you've created and all the damage that you have sown, that'll cause an impossibility for the follow-up act. And so it, it might be a short-term approach. But anyway, so bottom line is I think that we all have the ability to be good. And for sure, we all have dirt, evil, naughty things within us. And, and one of the salient points in this has been to understand how much of that we should bring to the table. There's a concept of radical transparency, and I'm against that. And the reason I'm against that is that there is mystery in beauty. Uh, or there's beauty in mystery. Sorry, it's mystery in beauty. Uh, and having the ability to, to know where that line is, where I'm going to stay 
mum on certain things because that doesn't need to be shared. I don't need to tell you about the underwear brand I'm wearing. It, that's irrelevant. I need to know what it is. I need to know how bad it is. And that's, that's the self-transparency that's important, the self-awareness. And then afterwards, once you know the parts all of yourself, then you have to decide how much of you you want to bring out. And, and too many people seem to think that it's all about showing what other people want to see, as opposed to starting with 100% of you and how much of you you want to show. And, and when you get to that point, you, you feel more comfortable sharing more of you, including, by the way, my foibles, my mistakes, uh, sharing my imperfections. Well, gosh, that's the best way to get a good team. A, you show that you're, you're human, that you are, are not just some sort of perfect 100% being. Two, you know how to better surround yourself with people who can compensate for what you're not good at. You know, I'm, I'm just a, not a financial guy. I'm, I'm a, I, need, I have the creativity, but sometimes I need to be reined in. So if I can be aware about that and express, hey, listen, guys, cut me off. If I go crazy on, this, on the financials, bring me in. As opposed to, yeah, I know everything. That's fucking legendary. Because one of the things I think doesn't get talked a lot about is, and I think this is the point you're on, you'll tell me in a sec, maybe the greatest skill an executive or a leader of any kind can have is not radical transparency, but radical self-awareness. Oh yeah, totally. Because to your point, if you are radically aware of your strengths and your weaknesses, what most people tell you is, well, you want to be well-rounded. Let's get well-rounded. Nah. Right? So, so I have four or five different learning differences, right? Dyslexia, dyscalculia, Dyspraxia. executive function disorder, ADHD. Right. I call it, I just wrap it all together called dysfuclio. <laughs> now, and, you know, you and I are former marketing executives, of course, and you and I have had very large multi-million dollar budgets and teams and global responsibilities and the like. Well, you look at it and go, okay, so you, you love the finance stuff. I have zero skill. Math was over for me in grade three. Don't send me a fucking spreadsheet. I mean, a very simple one, maybe, but any spreadsheet that's meaningful, somebody's going to have to hold my hand. So if you know that you say, listen, Hey, I have dysfuclia. I have some legendary skills over here and I'm stunningly incompetent on a whole list of shit. And if we as leaders know that and we're not, I'm not defensive about, I could give a shit. And if you want to devalue me because of it, then great, go fuck yourself. But if we know that, then what do we do? We build teams that multiply our assets and minimize our liabilities. And we build a balanced team based on the assets and liabilities of the team. So the team is well-rounded, but the individuals are not. And this bullshit that you have to be well-rounded, in my opinion, based on my life experience, is, is insane. Because there's no way, if you, take, if you take being a CMO or a CEO as an example, there's no way you're well-rounded in all the skills. It's insanity to think that. But anyway, I, 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 I'm curious as to your response. So I love that. And I would add that I think that in the notion of roundedness, 
we have tended to exclude certain types of profiles that could round us out even better. So I'm specifically thinking of, you know, when you go and you're going to get a team, a financial guy, an HR person, a, a marketing person, whatever, guys and girls and all that. Um, what about hiring anthropologists? What about hiring sociologists? and linguists and you know semiotic exp and all these uh, journalists you know by the way a lot of journalists are out of a job i mean talk about people who know how to write punchy excise uh, articles that's fantastic you should think about them and and look at them not like oh well they they're coming from the stupid old press but as people who have been experienced at observing and and uh, and writing communicating so I, I just I hang. I, I like to give a hat tip to journalists because I think they get a hard time, and some uh, most media deserve for the hard time that they're getting. Another topic. Yet, do I think that we should round our teams out with more diversity of backgrounds? And I'm not just doing a DIE kind of story here. I'm talking about diversity of backgrounds, diversity of of um, educations, and and that makes the roundedness more interesting. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. The diversity that doesn't get talked about enough is that. And yes, look, of course, diversity amongst the traditional kind of uh, context, be it race and, and, and sex and, and, and so forth. And age diversity, mm. particularly native digitals and native analogs. And to your point, diversity of skill set. Mm -hmm. and diversity of background. One of the interesting things that's happened here in Silicon Valley over the last decade or so is there was a point in time where you could not get hired at Google or Apple or any of the major companies unless you had a pretty serious degree with a pretty serious grades and, and so forth. And they had a pretty standardized set of tests that they put people through and, and this and that and the other. And if you were a high school dropout, fuck it, you're not, and never mind if you, you know. And today... If I'm not mistaken, if it's not, if I'm not exactly right, I'm directionally right, Minter. I recently read that Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, came out and said that I think it's 50% of their new hires now uh, don't have college degrees. An indictment on uh, that whole monstrous uh, dinosaur educational system that we have and the, the way we, uh, although I would say this, uh, that compared to many countries, the United States has a, a far broader array, even maybe more expensive, of styles of teaching and learning, understanding your, you know, <laughs> what do you call it, phacologies, mm -hmm. um, your different dyspraxia, dyslexia stories. There's a much more greater awareness of it in North America, including Canada, than there is in a lot of other countries in adopting different teaching techniques. I wanted to add one other thing to your thought, which um, you, you just made me serendipitously tip into, is that, uh, as I understand it anyway, at the beginning of Google, you wouldn't get hired if you weren't higher, as in you'd done some psychedelics, you know, had gone to Burning Man. That was the degree, that most important degree uh, that I understood that even Eric Schmidt had to pass in order to get his job. And I think that that's a, a far more eye-opening educational system than uh, some universities offer. <laughs>
It's interesting. It was a long time ago now, but we had on the podcast uh, several years ago, you know, it was so many whiskeys ago, I can't remember the guy's name. He was a wonderful guy. He was nominated or, or acknowledged by Rolling Stone magazine as the number one LSD microdosing coach in Silicon Valley. So he came on the podcast and he was talking about how the prevalence of microdosing and the value of it and this and that and the other. And so, you know, there's an interesting thing about what's happening in Silicon Valley now. The first wave of Silicon Valley who created Silicon Valley really were people who were of the hippie generation or derivatives of the hippie generation. And there was very much a sort of do-gooder, enlightenment, make a difference, change the world, all that. Uh, that has been gone now for quite Fred some new mark. Yeah. You know, you, you Steve jobs and uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that has been gone now for a long time. The money guys are here and Silicon Valley became much more media oriented. We sell ads. We don't create technology. And if you look at uh, you know, let me just pick my favorite villain in Silicon Valley, Zuckerberg, there's barely even a pretense that he's trying to do good things for the world. Right. Uh, I mean, he's trying to wrap it up now, but I mean, nope. Does anybody believe that fucking no? Whereas people, whether you believe he was uh, authentic or not, jobs presented as such. Um, The interesting thing that's going on now, however, is uh, in 2021, there was a material breakthrough in investments in Web3. I don't have the data in front of me, but essentially Web3 investments were sort of flatlined around three or four billion a year for two, three years. And in 2021, there was a material jump. I can't remember the number, but it might be 12 or 14 billion. It just went. And there's an emerging ethos with, you know, if you see it with Jack Dorsey and others, a little bit with Elon, there's a little bit more of this do-gooder uh, power to the people, decentralization, individual empowerment. You know, the, the the whole thing about the personal computer was that it was a personal computer to empower the individual. And so there's an interesting sort of circling back to that ethos, particularly around Web3 technologies that appears to be happening. But I, I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, I, I just recently listened to uh, Steve Jobs' 1983 speech about what is a personal computer. And I think it's a, a worthwhile listen, um, just to remind us of where we come from. And also to think about, as you said, his, his authenticity, because he, uh, he was enlightened. And, and I think that if we are in the Web3 world, uh, moving to this new space, there's a, a couple of actually very practical, pragmatic reasons for it. The first is that you can't just dictate what you want uh, and say, well, my, mine's the best. You have to buy this you know, over with that kind of a one-way approach. And, and so you kind of want to now create a system where the most powerful form of marketing is the only form of marketing, and that's word of mouth. And the best word of mouth needs to come from your entire team that's with you. So you start inside out. And you, you, you make your people voluntarily talk about how amazing it is to work for my organization. So in this case, it's not about transparency. It's about congruence. So that what you are saying and doing internally rhymes with what you are saying and doing externally. And, and you can look yourself in the mirror as an employee and say, 
this is me, I'm good. As opposed to, I'm a shirkster or shyster. I'm about to go out there and screw the world, as most marketers have uh, over the last few years, thus their loss of trust from the population. And so it, you, you, you want to do good, but not only good, because I'm, I'm really against the idea of totalitarianism when it comes to things like empathy or purpose. Uh, there's lots of and transparency. These are really useful ideas, and authenticity for that matter. You can't be 100% all the time any of these things, but you can strive to be more of it. And, and sometimes you need to dial it back, dial it up. But the more you are in touch with who you are as, an, as a leader, the more you're in touch with a higher purpose as an organization, the more you tap into your team's discretionary energy. And that is what your customers are going to feel. And that is what they're going to go away with. You know, they say, I don't remember what you said, Minter, but I sure, I sure remember the feeling I had when I spoke to you. It's it, absolutely, it's interesting. We're talking about this I, and I was just looking it up to see if it's still available. I remember as a young man on one of my very first visits to California, I went to Carmel and um, there was a wonderful bookstore there. I don't know if it's still there. Anyway, in there, I found this Zen sort of, I don't know if it was a coloring book or a workbook. Looks like it's a workbook. And it's called How You Do Anything is How You Do Everything. Mm. And then, of course, there's the famous saying, you, you, you can't do bad in one part of your life and good in another, right? And so we are who we are consistently. Yeah, the, the idea of being a, a, dick at, a dick at work and a nice person at home is not good. Well, and like, there's this thing in poker, and I'm not a poker player at all, but because uh, poker players like math, and math is like a taser to the oh, genitals for me. Ouch. But um, uh, <laughs> um, but um, uh, there's this thing in to poker called a, te a tell. Are you are you I, getting I, more whiskey yeah, there? Is that what you're doing? That's the aside without spelling the brand. Yeah, well, here I'll I'll do Whitford a little. Reserve is uh, gone there. Oh, this one doesn't pop. It's this, it's I, I'm lower end today than you. Mine doesn't pop. It screws off because it's I got Jack Daniels oh, in the studio man. today. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna Thank let you, you drink alone. Appreciate <laughs> um, we'll That's just it. get hammered That's today. It. Who gives a fuck? Now what the fuck were we talking about? That's a. I don't know. I lost well, my train of thought. I, I was, you know, but you know what? You know what? I say it's all about congruence, right? Everything is related. We are everything at work and home. So, what's your definition of congruence? Well, it's that's a great question. Yeah. When you say congruence, what do you mean, Minter? Um, so that there is a relationship that is uh, kind of explicit. Because the point is, I don't look for a hundred percent overlap. Just like when I I work with teams, and I say, hey, listen. You know, what's important is that you feel like your work is contributing to who you are, because who you are is the most important thing. And just like you said before, getting your, your rocks off at work, oh, hallelujah, it's brilliant. You're contributing to who you are. Work is your outlet. Work is your way. That's where you tap into discretionary energy, and that's brilliant. But you can't necessarily have 100% overlap. It's unlikely. Just like I don't want 100% transparency. I'm not pushing people to be perfect or have a hundred percent overlap. So congruence is a relationship between who I am as an individual and who the organization wants to be 
and what's its legacy and how am I contributing to it? So congruence is that relationship and finding the overlap. And in the end of the day, it's the story you tell yourself. Because there is no sort of magical wand that says, oh, that's it. You should do this. No, you have to find it yourself. And then you make the narrative, just like you find your purpose. Well, you find, you, you architect your purpose. You need to tap it. Don't just, it doesn't just sort of fall from a tree. You've got to work on it. You've got to think about it. And then you, you might find you need to wordsmith a little bit more to come up with the exact phrase that you really want to go with. I mean, mine, I'm still open for change. I've been working on mine for the last 15 years. Actually, the very beginning happened on September 11, 2001. That's when I decided that I really needed to have a purpose. And then I wanted to make sure that that somehow linked into, in congruent manner, into what I was doing at Redkin. And that was my story. And, that, and I felt it. And, I, was, and I, I, I legitimately felt the tingles, you know, that dopamine hit. And that's where I knew I was good and congruent. Why don't we have more of that? You know, I think there are two things. One is that we don't actually know who we are. So how can you be congruent if you haven't done the work on yourself? Which is really the first call of, of action of you lead is do the work on yourself. And the second thing, and, and it's also very real and pragmatic, is that not everybody feels that they can afford to do it. Uh, I, I don't want to work at this space because I don't feel like it's me. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. And the question is your, your level of threshold of, of dealing with that tolerating that, that gap between who you are and who you want to be, who, what you're doing and who you want to be. And sometimes you just got to do stuff just to get food on the plate. And that's fine. And, and so it's really not about being the ayatollah of purpose and, and being so dogmatically structured around who your purpose is. Because sometimes, you know, there's, there's the realities in our lives. We, we end up moving around and having to do things. Yet, the, the more you can dial into who you are, then the more likely you're going to find a network of people who are like you. And that network then helps build you, your business out. And then they start talking about you and you don't need to talk about yourself anymore because it's, it's, it's spreading by itself. So yeah, that's, that's my thought. What about you? Uh, so doing versus being, and I say this like an idea to bounce off you. Maybe we've meaningfully over-rotated on doing. So if you look at the business world, by way of example, a lot of people have confused results and outcomes with the activity contest. And one of the meaningful damages of, of hustle porn is it's all about doing. Oh, you gotta work seven days a week, 365, mm -hmm. ah, I'm hustling, ah. right? Well, here's, here's what people don't seem to get. I'll give you two simple examples that I love, Mandela and Gandhi. So Gandhi spent the vast majority of li his life laying down or sitting down in a towel, not talking, best I can understand. And Mandela spent a meaningful percentage of his life locked in a cell where he, he had very limited ability to fucking do anything. However, both of these individuals, who they were, that is to say, who they were being, was so fucking big so fucking differentiated, so fucking radical, so fucking positive that the being of that 
became undeniable. And both of them led massive transformations that made a difference to millions in both cases. And so we live in this bullshit world about doing, 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 you know, in, in the marketing world, in the entrepreneurial world, the sort of glory around what you got done today, how many hours you worked and all that stuff. And look, and I'm not saying that hard work and getting shit done isn't important. It is. You can't be some dreamer that never fucking puts the puck in the net. But at the same time, I think we've radically over-rotated on doing, and there is a meaningful lack of discussion around who we're being, who we are, and why who we're being matters and makes a difference. So here's a, there's a, I got a couple of riffs. The first is uh, going to our Frenchness. So in France in 2019, they did a law called the La Loi Pacte, P-A-C-T-E. And the La Loi Pacte uh, said that certain organizations of certain sizes and uh, working for the government had to have what was called uh, a raison d'être, a reason for being. That's what that means. Raison d'être, uh, a.k.a. purpose. And when they did a survey uh, shortly after that, because everyone, got, of course, jumped on this, you know, oh my gosh, what's your raison d'être? And, uh, and I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say it was around about 55% of companies, <clears throat> executives said that their number one raison d'être, reason for being, purpose, was savoir faire, which is knowledge of doing. And I just said, oh, that's really pretty funny. They've, they've, they've missed the boat. And just like you say, the idea of not doing anything is no good. The, the Italians have another expression, which is far niente, I do nothing. I am just a being. <laughs> you can imagine them sitting there with their olive trees in in, uh, in Calabria or wherever, you know, having a nice time doing nothing. And that doesn't actually make the world go round either. But the the thing that I I like to focus on with the being element is if think of a future sense of who you are uh, and who you want to be, and and do not fill that with what you do, because that is the gap that we we end up. Of course, you are filled by the things that you do, and, and that creates this being that you are. But if you can just think about who you are um, and how absolutely uselessly small you are in the universe, put things into perspective. And, and that's where psychedelics um, has a wonderful in a macrodose capacity to remind us that the, the the hardwood of my table is absolutely merging into the, the floor, into my chair. And there's, there's a seamlessness of all these things. Cause in the end of the day, if you push it to its extreme, everything is connected and I'm just a little pimple on a dead you know, horse's ass, meaninglessly small. And if we can remind ourselves about that, then we can lean into being of greater service to the others around us, and and that then becomes more meaningful. That's the kind of being that we need to be. Wow, fires up so much in my brain. The, the first thing it fires up is um, uh, we've been incredibly fortunate to have Harvard's top astronomer, uh, Professor Avi Loeb, on the podcast a couple times. 
And he's the guy that discovered, um, well, no, he didn't discover it, but he's the guy that said this thing called Oumuamua uh, that came and visited us uh, 17, maybe? I, I may be off on the year, but um, that because Oumuamua was nothing we've ever seen before, it didn't behave like a comet, it didn't behave like an asteroid, and we know for a fact it's the first thing we've ever tracked to come outside our solar system, into our solar system, come check out Earth and leave. He said, well, we, we don't know what it is. We know it's not anything we understand. And until we can prove what it is, it's, it's powerful, and, and I'm paraphrasing his thinking, it's powerful to consider that it's alien in origin. And so, you know, there's this, there's this notion of kind of um, opening the aperture of our thinking. So that's sort of the first thing I think of. Then the next thing I think of is what you just said, I think, is part of why Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, has been so popular, and I'm deeply appreciative of his work, because that makes sense. Why the fuck are you doing it? And in category design, one of the things we talk a lot about is missionaries versus mercenaries. And look, there's a role for some mercenary shit. I, I, so I don't want to be overly pejorative. Mm-hmm. Sometimes go make some fucking yeah. money or go get a fucking thing done because it needs to get done. I'm, you know, so I don't want to be overly black and white. However, most human beings respond more to missionary things. That is to say, things that are motivated, uh, at least in part, by contribution, by making a difference. And I think... If you look at if you look at what's going on in space exploration right now, what we see is a very powerful private uh, uh, government partnership happening, and you have private companies doing things that only governments uh, heretofore did, and now they're doing it, and they're doing it in partnership with government. And so I think you know that that's a very very uh, powerful thing, and so I think this notion of starting with why of getting very grounded. Uh, of being open-minded, of engaging in a set of thinking that to some might seem unusual is a very powerful thing. And I think in terms of our own career, particularly if you look at native digitals, their requirement for purpose and meaning in their work, best I could tell, and of course I'm not one, I'm a native analog, so I have to do my best to understand, uh, acknowledging that you know, just like I have uh, my friend Eddie is a, of Korean descent and I love Korean culture and Korean culture is having a huge moment in the United States and around the world right now. And I had uh, Joanne Molinero, the Korean vegan on the podcast, love Korean, and, you know, all that stuff. You can have appreciation for it, but I have no idea what it fucking means to be Korean. All that said, the native digitals, that is to say people 35 and under, seem to have... Uh, be more intuitive, let me say maybe say it that way, about purpose than some of their native analog uh, parents and uncles and so, grandparents. Uh, first of all, <laughs> to all my, our Korean listeners. And when I mentioned before that there's a practical and pragmatic reason for this idea of the why and the purpose absolutely relates to the idea of the war for talent, getting great people on board and and tapping into their discretionary energy. And the point here is that, uh, I have two points. One is that we're all wanting to work hard. Everybody in every company, they get up and they get out of bed and they go to work. 
albeit sometimes they're just you know four meters to their desk these days. They they want to do good, but the difference is when you can have that extra step, that extra energy, and I call it the discretionary energy. And when you can do that, then you are going to create a longer term competitive advantage in your team. And and uh, in, in, in the way to tap into that. So Minter, I'm I'm glad you brought up this phrase discretionary energy because when I read it in your book. I didn't remember hearing it elsewhere. Uh, and, and it sounded like a very fascinating concept to me. And so would you pop the hood on discretionary energy? Yeah. So the, the general idea is that we, we get up, we get out of bed, and, and based on the amount of sleep we had, the amount of coffee we drink, we, we bring to work a certain energy. And, and then shit happens, like the, the red light comes quicker, it's, it stays later, so your commute sucks for those who are still commuting. And then you get to work and uh, you get an email from your boss says, what the fuck did you do, Dial? And, you, you know, shit happens. And, and or, you know, a, a, a producer of some show card doesn't get it on time or, or you know, whatever. And, and so your day gets hit with these things. And so you start the day with a certain level of energy. And as the day goes along, some good things, but you just, there's inevitably a lot of shit that happens. Bang, 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 bang. And the end of the day, you go home, oh, give me a drink. I'm tired. You know, I've had enough of this. Then you go to sleep and you hope to recuperate. And you come back to something. And that is your up and down. And, and what if you could create a day where at the end of the day, you're at the same level as the beginning of the day. And so you've had a full night's sleep. You don't even need a cup of coffee. And your day still has all the shit but you're riding above it. And by the end of the day, because you know why you're doing what you're doing, you feel enlightened. You feel lighter. You feel empowered because you're actually doing shit that matters. And that is what taps into the brain somehow. And I'm no neuroscientist, but it allows you to feel that, oh my God, that feels good. That dopamine hit, you know, like when you have that thing that creeps from the top of your head and it goes all the way back into the back of your, your brain. Oh, that's such a beautiful feeling. Well, create more of that. That's where the discretionary energy is. And that's what allows you to power through the day. Fascinating. And, you know, in preparation for today, of course, I, when you first sent me your book, I took a kind of quick pass through it. And then in preparation for today, I've been digging into it more and this idea is actually maybe one of the biggest ideas uh, in the book. I don't know. You'll tell me. And, and, and the cool thing about this idea of discretionary energy is serendipitously, I experienced it last night. So in general, I'm quote unquote, a morning person. I've always woken up generally fairly early. As a kid, I had a paper route. My grandfather liked to get up early. One of the biggest joys in my life would be to get up early. And of course, he was Scottish and have tea with him. And sometimes we'd go for a walk and he'd tell me stories. And so for whatever reason, unlike a lot of other people, I've tended to be much more of a morning person, tend to go to sleep a little earlier than most. Uh, I'm you know, a night where I fall asleep at 8.30 is bliss for me, and I wake up at, you know, 4.30 to 5.30, and that's a, you know, a wonderful day for me. So last night, I'm in this constant flow with Eddie and Cole on Category Pirates, and we're always working on stuff and passing things around and working on our, our books and our newsletter and the like. And it's, it's 
the single most creative experience over a long period of time I've had in my career. So I've had highly intense creative experiences for periods of time, but I've never been in a weekly flow with two other people for a year that is quite like what I've been experiencing. So here's what happens last night. We're working on our current newsletter and it's a big one. It's a 10,000 word one. It's incredibly important. In this case, it's about education and the new category of native digital education. And it really matters a lot to all of us. And there's a lot of research in it. And we've talked to a lot of people about it, blah, blah, yada, yada. So we did a first really good draft earlier in the week and it blew open even more and this and that and the other. So long story, way longer. Cole sends the second or third draft last night and it lands at, you know, just after dinner time, seven o'clock, something like that. And in general, I will say, fuck it. And I'll look at it in the morning. Cause I know that's when, you know, my, my, my juices tend to flow. You're right. But we're in such a, we're in such a vibe about this current letter. I can't not look at it. And as soon as I look at it, here's what happens. I spent three or four hours on it last night. Wow. At full throttle. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm as powerful. I'm as engaged. I'm as creative. I have some funny ideas. You know, one of the funny ideas I had last night was, um, uh, have you seen these stickers? They're popular in the United States. I don't know if they are in Europe that says, you know, my child is an honor student at blah, blah, blah school. Do they have these things in Europe? No, no. We, we don't do that. No. It, well, this is the thing we have in the United States. And parents will put a sticker on their a car that says that. And one of the things we're talking about in the letter is 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 native digital education. And so anyway, we're working on all this. I'm 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 two three hours into working uh, on this thing after dinner, and I have this flash. That bumper sticker comes to my mind, and I think about what's the future version of that bumper sticker. And of course, it's not created yet. So I go on Canva and I create a version of a bumper sticker that I think is the. the, So if the analog version of that bumper sticker is my child is the honor student at blah, blah, blah school. I write the sticker that goes like this, which we put in the newsletter that says my child is student of the month in the metaverse. (laughs) Anyway, long story longer. I'm in this creative super zone. And. I get done and I, I fire, you know, we're working Google Docs. And then I text the boys and say, you know, I'm, I'm signing out for the night. You guys have the puck now. And, and as I, you know, sat down, my wife and I got to bed and started our kind of uh, routine to go to sleep and the like. I had this aha. I said, hey, wait a minute. Is that what Minter's talking about with discretionary energy when we're so personally empowered and engaged and I know it's going to sound West coasty and whatever, but we're enlivened by the work that we do that it actually doesn't matter what our normal rhythms are. When we engage, we engage and we get lit up and we lose track of time and, and we dig in and we, and to your point on all the, chemicals in the brain. I Do you have this experience? I have this experience regularly, which is when I get into the zone I'm describing, I have this moment where I go, I fucking love hanging out in my brain. Hmm. Right. And, and you live in that zone and time goes away and all of those things happen. Anyway, long story, a thousand times longer. Is that 
discretionary energy when you're normally winding down and you poof explode with creativity and excitement and enthusiasm and focus a hundred percent and the gift that i would say christopher is think about why that happened to you and my supposition is that if we could fix education we can fix the world and so that's a pretty big freaking topic. I interviewed a woman called Claire Boonstra, who founded a company called Layar, A-L-A-Y-A-R. She's a Dutch woman, absolute dynamo, huge influencer and everything. And she moved to a thing called Operation Education. How can we fix education? And, and I could just hear her energy all the time. And so when you get onto big topics that resonate and are congruent with who you want to be, that is where the flow is. And, and uh, of course, you know, my, my, my bumper sticker says, my kid did LSD, is, is sort of my, my feeling of the best education honor system. Like the good deadhead that you are, Minter. Yeah. <laughs> and, and my kids are not honor students, and I'm proud of them for that. Uh, I, I think mediocrity uh, has, we all have our things where we're strong at, and being on a student is one way of the past. Uh, and there are others, you know, a la Tim Cook, where you don't have to follow the, that consigned path for success. And by the way, what is success? I just had uh, Maurizio and Zaya Bonazzo on my show, and they did a, a, a film called the, the Wisdom of Trauma. And um, I think that we, we need to redefine success as a society. And I think that would be a good conversation for for the world to have so that we can find meaningfulness well success through meaningfulness not success in the size of a bank account the size of my car or sure house because we can't take any of that to our grave yes and 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 you know i i know a lot of people might feel skeptical or call bullshit or whatever but i i think there is a, a correlation between entrepreneurship and capitalism and self-actualization it's not the path for everybody but um if you if you accept the premise that uh human beings in their purest form create you know let's start with the fact that human beings create life you know my my i <laughs> with women i start with holy fuck they make people that's like that's a pretty big idea. Uh, that's a revolutionary idea to me, to this day, right? Um, and so we create life, and we create art, and we create businesses, and we create economic wealth, and we create, hopefully, ever increasingly just societies. And and we and of course, uh, we're farmers, right? My my wife's family. We're now on our fifth generation of farmers farming the same land here in San Jose. And so I spent a lot of time picking peaches and, and, and pruning trees. And, and as somebody who didn't grow up with that, it's a very powerful experience to be, you know, my father-in-law is 91 years old, and this is a piece of property his father, so my wife's grandfather, purchased. And we're the last working orchard in San Jose. And so, so there's this, this, this whole experience of... Uh, having a connection to things that matter. And, and when you create an orchard, there's something powerful about that. 
And what I've learned is that experience, there's a power to that and there's a power to creating a business. There's a power to creating a painting. There's a power to creating a a wonderful NFT. (laughs) And so if, if you accept the premise that the most powerful state for, for humans is creation and like anything legendary, we materially increase its power and value when it goes from a singular activity to a collaborative or a co-creative activity. So it's one thing to work in the orchard by yourself. It's one thing to be a solopreneur. It's a whole other thing to care for an orchard with a group of people or to build a company with a group of people. And, and if it's something you love and you have that kind of uh, cohesion that we were talking about earlier uh, with a group of people, the enjoyment of it, the reward psychically from it, forget the financial for a sec, by co-creating an orchard or co-creating anything, a business, art, whatever it is, you know, uh, Metallica has a wonderful masterclass right now on how to be a band. And I recommend everybody listen to it, regardless of whether or not you're ever going to play music. It's stunning. It's absolutely fucking stunning. And so my point is, uh, creation is a powerful, natural state for people. And maybe this makes me sound like I lived on the West Coast too long, but co-creation is exponentially uh, more powerful beyond that. All right. So, Christopher got four points for you uh, and I, I want to swing back on one thing because i i left it hanging which i said there were two ideas about being practical with regard to raison d'etre and the second is yeah yeah sure the digital natives are right 35 and under but when they come to you and say hey dad why did you work for the same company for 20 years well son that's just because the way it was and does it have to be that way dad well son uh uh, actually, I don't have an answer for that. And I think that the questioning that the digital natives are having with their parents, you know, like you and me, for example, um, actually, they're right. <laughs> well, so it's not just the digital natives that actually have got cottoned on to this shit. We were talking about ageism at the very beginning. We, I think we can hire people who are older just because they have gray hair or no hair um, doesn't mean that they don't understand the idea of mission and purpose. Yet, uh, when we look at the capitalistic model, the, the, the death of understanding of raison d'etre and purpose in Wall Street is a problem. So, Because you need to have financing. And if finance only is interested in the quarterly earnings report, EPS, then we, we, we will still struggle to convert. I mean, yes, we need to make profits and all that. But I think that until Wall Street fully embraces the idea of doing good is a good is way is good for business as opposed to just good business you know making money then they there there'll be um it's going to be a long struggle i want to finish or actually i don't want i want one more thing which is um tom rainsford uh from beavertown brewery which is they make these really craft ipas in england um they're absolutely brilliant i recommend them tremendously beaver town can you send me a hundred cases immediately please well, actually, gonna, you said, you, you you said you one of my favorite phrases craft ipa <laughs> what, you know what this is this is the most stolen glass of 
a pint glass in England. Uh, and I'm, I'm showing you it online. Is it really? Yeah. It looks very snazzy it and jazzy. And, and yeah. It's called a psychedelic. Why is this the most? Well, because everyone recognizes oh, of course it. it it's is. Beaver Town. And, uh, and why? Because they, they are just a brand. And, the, and, the, and Tom said, you know what we do is we don't think like a brand. We think like a band. And so they're, they're, they're striving to fit your rhythm and, and make you move. And that's what it's all about. The E-motion is, is about E-moving, right? Uh, anyway, the last thing I wanted to say, which is, and it's an important thing, which is about this notion of connecting. So you go to your orchard and, you, and, you, and you're picking peaches and, and doing all this. Uh, Johan Hari wrote a book called Lost Connections. And I think it was one of the most important books that's been written, and I, and I and I include yours, and and mine, and all this. But this one really hit a very high level because it's about helping people with mental health, and it's and he himself, Johan Hari, had been uh, clinically diagnosed as depressed for twenty five, thirty years, using all the uh, SRIs that are out there, SSRIs, and. Um, he said, well, actually, but you know what? Some sadness is absolutely normal. You, you, you've had a, a parents who divorced and violently so, and you feel depressed? No, you are normally sad because that's a very hard thing to deal with. You're not depressed. You're sad, and you need to grieve through it. You can't just put a blue pill in your mouth and get over it. And the way to deal with life, because life is always going to have a certain volume of shit. It's how you deal with it. And the way you deal with it is reconnect. So reconnect with yourself. You know, and I'm not going to, I could say masturbation, but just feel your body, feel your breathing, reconnect with nature, go out and smell the air, listen to the birds, put your hands in the dirt and, and find a worm and, and watch it wriggle in your hand. Pick a you know, take a, a a peach from the tree that you're growing in your orchard, yeah, and 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 then bite into it. Let the juices come right down and just drop because it's so gorgeously juicy into yourself. Re there, there are several different ways that Johan talks about of reconnecting and 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 connecting with others, strangers, friends, family. Huh, that. Is what is I think this conversation has been and is what we need more about in the world. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. And in that regard, my now 91-year-old father-in-law, Phil, is emblematic of all of that. Phil is, and I mean this in the most laudatory way possible, a very simple man. He loves his family and his friends. He loves his orchard and the customers who come, his community, and his country. He's a former Marine. He served in the Korean conflict. And that's it. Thank you for his service. And he gets, the reason he's, he's unbelievable. He's so fucking unbelievable. And by the way, he'd never tell you he was a Marine, ever. Once um, a Marine, always a Marine. Correct. And if you met him, you wouldn't think he's a Marine. He's not physically large or uh, 
confronting in any way. And he's very, he's a, an introvert and he's soft-spoken and, but he's a warrior. Anyway, he has been an extraordinary teacher because he is everything that you just said. And, and that's why he's 90 fucking one. So he was born in 1930, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he, he lived through shit. And um, I, I, when during the lockdown, and yes. all that, I was walking through the garden in my backyard in London here. We live in West Kensington. And uh, it's a complex with 160 flats. And there's a nice little triangular garden in the bottom. London's full of these gardens. And uh, there was a park bench, there's several park benches. So one of them was occupied by a an older lady um, who had her walking sticks um, on the side there. And I, I walked by her at, at a very reasonable distance. And I said, good day, ma'am. And she looked at me and said, what did you say? I said, oh, good day, ma'am. I'm hard of hearing. Come over, sit down. I'm not sure it's a good idea. Oh, don't be flaff along. You sit down beside me. What did you say? So I'm now within the the distance, right? She's obviously quite old. And we got to meet her. Her name was Doris. And and she said, you know, you people, you as in everybody under my age who didn't live through the Second World War, you've lost the plot. You people are gone crazy. I... I'm stuck. I'm isolated in my home. No one's allowed to come meet me. And it's because it's dangerous outside. Because it's tough out there. Oh my. Get with it. I would rather die living than live dead. I had it tough. Or we had it much tougher. And she described how at the age of 18, she enlisted to the British Army, at the age of 18, would get up at six and go do duty through the bombings in London. One day she came home and Doris's home didn't exist anymore. So her mum, father, and she had to live in the tube. And because of the dank conditions in the tube, her father, who had poor uh, lungs, died and then they came home and lived in, a, in an alternative home. And when her husband came home, he wasn't the same man. That was difficult and dangerous. And, and she just chided me and said, you know, we need to remember what life's all about and what's, what is really tough and what is not. So that's just to hark back to your step, your father, your, sorry, your father-in-law and, uh, and a hat tip to Doris who passed away unfortunately, last year. She was 96. God bless Doris. I think one of the blessings, the bizarre blessings of this evil virus is um, native digitals have now experienced some hardship early. And a lot has been said about, oh, you know, eh, the poor kids. And And I know, listen, I have those kids in my life. I'm uncle to more of them than I can count. And I have empathy for that. However, to your point, I can't tell my nephew Finn that it was actually legendary for him that he didn't get to go to his high school prom. And so, yes, the teachings of Doris are important and 
going through some hardship early makes for stronger people. Back to the education part, right? Right. Well, I would never have, of course, wished this horrible disease on us. We must, of course, look for silver linings, even if it feels like putting whipped cream on dog shit. And sometimes it is putting whipped cream on dog shit. But the reality is, uh, I think we will end up raising a more resilient class of uh, Gen Z native digitals. And I think that's super positive as, as much as I would have loved for Finn to have had his graduation. The other thing that I think Chris has happened is that we have all figured out that working for shit isn't really worthwhile. And, and so this idea, whether or not it's real, but the great resignation or the great shuffle whatever we want to call it, uh, of people reconsidering why they're working, where they're working, and and what is it all about. I think that's, for me, the bigger silver lining, so that the companies that actually know how to tap into a, a truer, more genuine, doesn't have to be Mother Teresa-like, but some bigger purpose will allow people to feel more fulfilled at work. And, and that's where you start ending up with people who are aligned with the values and the mission of the organization and they're rowing together uh, at a beat that's stronger and that's where you deliver greater profits at the end of the day because of course we want to be profitable yes and as somebody who early on studied and 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 began to appreciate Jean-Paul Sartre and, and, and other existentialists I think the fact that we're having an existential conversation globally is a very positive thing a very positive thing. Hence the need to be more than do. Yes. If we can tilt back a little bit to being, who are you versus what are you doing? Amen. And are you tethered to a set of core values um, that matter to you and hopefully to others? Now, you and I could clearly talk about this shit forever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is it. there anything else you, is there, we should do a series together. Is there anything else you want to touch on, Minter? I'm compelled to, uh, to tell people, if you think you know who you are, think again. And, and give yourself the gift of looking at more profoundly, more honestly, with greater self-awareness, who you are. And, and outside of being a better leader at work, you might find yourself being a better person at home or elsewhere as well. Yes. And it actually leads me to a question. On, on sort of self-discovery. I mean, we go back to the very beginning of our conversation, how being yourself makes you a better leader. So there's part of being yourself that is discovery. And take food as a simple example. You try some foods, you like them, you don't like them. I don't know why, for some reason, I don't know if I was beaten with a pickle as a child, but if I smell a pickle, I immediately have a gag reflex and I you know, kind of want to throw up. And so it's not some decision I made. I don't have any political uh, opinion against pickles or people who like pickles. I just they make me feel physically ill. And I, I don't know what the fuck. So part of who I am is keep those fucking pickles away from me. And, you know, I was talking to my friend Ben the other day and he said, you know, I almost bought you the pickle of the month. There, there's some website that'll send you pickles of the month just to be funny. 
anyway, so there's part of self-discovery, and of course that's a frivolous one, where we, for whatever reason, discover something about ourselves that seems to be very true, and, 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 and we discover that, and we say, okay, so no fucking pickles. The other part of it, however, is a big part of who we are, that is to say who we're being, is also a decision, is parts discovery and parts creation. I create myself as who I want to be. So how do you think about this uh, mixing of discovering, I like this, I don't like that, I enjoy this, I don't like that, you know, I like Tuscan reds, I don't like Napa reds, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I like whiskey, uh, et cetera, et cetera. As, as opposed to who I want to become is a legendary entrepreneur, a legendary marketer, a legendary parent, a legendary, whatever it is, right? And so there's an aspirational, I want to create myself as something versus discover myself. How do you think about the interplay between those? I mm, love that question, Christopher. And uh, for me, it's it's quite simple to say, harder to do. And the point is that we cannot hide from our past. So the awareness is to tap into why you don't like pickles. And don't just fluff it off. Lean into it. What is it about that smell? And it, the, if you can tap into, oh, actually... That reminds me of the smell of bad shoes. And I was whipped by my father with bad shoes. Aha. Uh-huh. That's interesting. And I don't mean to be a psychologist, but at the very least, you, you, you have to know your past. And, and then the, the idea of crafting your future was like, if you don't have any plans, you know, you just, you're going to wobble. <laughs> you will eventually fritter away because you do need to construct. You can't just live permanently in the day because you have to pay rent they're practical matters you you need to hire a church to get your daughter married you or you know whatever (laughs) things happen in the future that you need to prepare for and and despite your past you can create the person you want to be but you need to know your past and not hide it away because if you try to put it under the carpet and then create the person I want to be. I want to be a, a legendary, you know, basketball player. But I have this stuff in my carp, you know, my in my wardrobe, the Lion, the Witch, uh, in my wardrobe, and I'm not I'm not prepared to explore them. Then it's going to make it hard to really be fully, authentically that future person you want to be. And once you have those two things understood, then. It's about being present and understanding how absolutely insignificant we are in the middle um, and, and keeping our ego in place. And, and that will help you get to be the person you want to be. So it's about knowing your past, understanding where you want to go. And these are both deep concepts. And then living in the present and being there in, in the moment and making the experiences uh, that include the enlivened moments of Christopher getting upset and emotional and angry, the happy place. Those are, that's the moments today, but they're all movements and participating in the construction of who you want to be. So yeah, hopefully that answers it. 
Thank, thank you for that. And I'm to circle back to my friend, Dr. Avi Loeb, the head of astronomy at Harvard. One of the things he shared with me, and I, I'll be directionally right, I may be a little off on the number, but is there are roughly 60 billion planets in the known universe that are likely Earth-like. And as a result, what he says, and I'm paraphrasing, is that it is virtually impossible that there isn't life elsewhere in the universe. It's virtually impossible. My great-grandmother said... To- my great-grandmother said to my father, she was a professor at a school in California, in Long Beach, California, and she told my father when he was six years old that there are more stars than there are grains of sand on this earth. Yes, and I actually asked Dr. Loeb about that. Is that, is that real or is that some foo-foo West Coast bullshit? It is absolutely real, is what he shared with me. And so... And this may, the dichotomy of this is maybe the the glory of it. On one hand, we all take ourselves so seriously. We all take our life seriously. We all take our countries and our businesses and our planet seriously. And at the same time, uh, when we understand these things, whether it's stars or planets and, and so forth, we realize, you know, when I asked Dr. Loeb, if... Amuamua was had beings on it, which we don't know, of course. He doesn't think it did, but maybe it did. And maybe beings have visited us and maybe, you know, there's a lot of evidence now. The government's released a lot of evidence that it's likely or more likely that uh, other beings have visited us. I, I said to him, well, why wouldn't Amuamua stop and say hello and connect? And he said, well, here's why. When you're walking down the street, having a nice walk, and you happen to look down and you see a group of ants, you don't stop and notice the ants. You just go, oh, there's a bunch of fucking ants, and you keep going. <laughs> and so, so sort of, he was obviously giving perspective on our role and place in the universe. And he, and again, I'm paraphrasing him, says that we're very arrogant, that we elevate ourselves and we view ourselves as unique and special and all these things. And and maybe we're just ants in the universe. On one hand, of course, that could be a very disempowering notion. We don't matter. We're just a bunch of fucking ants. There's 60 billion other planets. There's more stars than there are uh, sand, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, in a strange way, there's something very freeing about that, isn't there? Mm. Well, we, we, we over-dramatize and, and grandize, aggrandize our sense of worth. And I think if we can just sort of get rid of the ego piece a little bit, I, I'm inclined to uh, use a phrase written by Robert Hunter, who wrote a song called Eyes of the World. It says, wake up to find out that you are the eyes of the world. And that in the the desire to wake up is a, is a first part. And then just notice things, observe, listen, and, and put yourselves into perspective. Ooh, la, la. That's one of the most beautiful lyrics that I have ever come across. Yes. And for some reason, I'm reminded of one of my favorite books, uh, Richard Bach's Illusions. I need to read that, I guess. 
Oh my God. Oh my God. Minter. Okay. Emergency 911 situation. Uh, read, read illusions in the next 48 hours, please. It's a very short book. It's extraordinary. Um, and, um, Yes, it's the illusions we uh, paint for ourselves about our importance uh, are fascinating. Mr. Dial, is there anything else? I think we've done uh, a good start. <laughs> well, thank you, brother. Thank you for writing. You lead. I especially hope that younger generations read it, although, of course, it's applicable to everybody. And I uh, want to uh, strongly encourage you to keep thinking and keep writing and keep contributing. Thank you, brother. Christopher, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It was lovely. All right. Well, there he is, Minter Dial. And if you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, why not share it with somebody you love right now? Your podcast app has a share feature on it. You could just hit it and send it out to 250,000 of your closest friends. And don't forget, Minter's new book is out. It's called You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And also, if you enjoy dialogue podcasts, Minter's podcast is called The Minter Dialogue Podcast. How do you like that for a legendary name? Check it out wherever you get legendary podcasts. My friends at Hallow App are the world's first real relationship app. No sensors, no algorithms, and no feed fatigue. Just you and your real friends and your real family. And the way Hallow App works is in order to connect with somebody on Hallow App, you have to have their phone number and they have to have yours. And if you have your, each other's phone numbers, Hallow App assumes you're real friends and then you can get connected in a completely private, secure way. Check out H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com today. That's HalloApp.com or search Hallow App in your uh, app store of choice. And my friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first organic flax milk. Uh, Malibu Milk is the small, tasty change that makes a big difference. I love this stuff. And if you go to Malibu Milk, spelt with a Y, dot com right now, and order your Malibu Milk, uh, use the discount code DIFFERENT15 to get a 15% discount on your order. That's Malibu Milk with a Y, dot com. And the other thing that makes Malibu Milk great, it's the first milk company in history ever founded by a mom. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much for your time and attention and investing part of your life with us. We deeply appreciate it. Our friends at Otternet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. And if you want to get a website built soon, they have a rapid relaunch program. Ask them about it. My friends at interviewvalet.com are where you go if you want to get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts, because that's all they do. They're the leaders in a podcast interview marketing check out interviewvalet.com today oh by the way your spouse texted and they said it's fine you can go ahead and subscribe to category pirates right now go to lockhead.com and subscribe to category pirates also want to um, say a big shout out a heartfelt shout out to our ukrainian listeners and friends want you to know we are sending thoughts prayers and money uh, around here we just made a big donation to doctors without borders also known as Médecins sans frontières and they're doing legendary work check out doctors without borders or msf or any other legendary nonprofit making a difference for ukraine today all right our information is provided to you solely for informational purposes and this podcast is the sole property of the lockhead oddcast network warning the creators of this podcast have absolutely been cre uh, been consuming libations 
Opinions and this podcast contains content known by the state of California to cause different thinking. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do our uh, legendary technical execution around here, and they're responsible for Lockhead.com. Go to Lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. The handsome and talented GM Simon does our show notes. The brothers, RJ and EX Bobus, do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record Follow Your Different on Squadcast.fm. If you want to do legendary podcasts in the cloud, check out Squadcast.fm today. If you must send us email, send us email to blackhole, all one word, at lockhead.com. Lucinda Will Williams was right. Listen to the Ramones. Teach dialogue and entrepreneurship. Don't forget that everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vlad. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Uh, Stay safe. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.